Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 218 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Lunar Orbit. This is Apollo Control. 67 hours, 28 minutes, ground elapsed time. Mid-course correction burn number 4 has been deleted from the flight plan on the recommendation to Flight Director Glenn Lunny from the Flight Dynamics Officer Jay Green. The maneuver, had it been carried out as planned, would be in the neighborhood of one-half foot per second velocity change. As it is now, the uh, trajectory is being predicted to arrive at uh, near point or closest approach of about 62 nautical miles, plus or minus two miles, if nothing else is done to the trajectory. That is, if no maneuver is made. Spacecraft... uh, Cabin pressure now holding at 4.7 pounds per square inch. Temperature 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The planned sleep period has another hour and a half to go, but as mentioned earlier, will likely run another couple hours. And as much as mid-course correction burn number four will not be made, and the crew will not have to uh, spend the time preparing to... uh, do the burn, to align the platform, and do all the chores necessary for doing a maneuver of this sort. Clock counting down to lunar landing, showing 35 hours, 17 minutes. And at 67 hours, 29 minutes, ground elapsed time, this is Apollo Control. Day 4, July 19, 1969. Buzz Aldrin opened his eyes and floated in the darkness, collecting his thoughts, remembering where he was. He was still inside the command module Columbia. Only the hum of the cabin fans broke the total silence of space. Every so often, strange flashes appeared. Aldrin did not know what they were, but they seemed to be something actually entering the cabin. Perhaps a vagabond cosmic particle decaying in the command module's atmosphere. He had seen the flashes last night, too. 
Now he made a mental note to mention them to Armstrong and Collins. They were still asleep, down in their sleeping bags. Aldrin had spent the night up in his couch on the right-hand side with a lightweight headset taped to his ear in case Houston tried to call during the night. Nobody kept watch on a space flight anymore. Ever since Apollo 8, they had done away with that in interest of getting better sleep. On this mission especially, sleep was important. All three astronauts had agreed before they left Earth to take it easy on the way out to the moon, knowing that it would be a mistake to arrive in lunar orbit tired the way Borman, Lovell, and Anders had in Apollo 8. It came down to a state of mind. They would convince themselves as they coasted out to the moon that the mission had not really begun and that it would not begin until the moment when Armstrong and Aldrin floated into the lunar module Eagle, undocked from Columbia, and started the final descent to the moon. Aldrin was up early. The end of the rest period wasn't for another two hours, but he knew they would be reaching the moon in about seven hours, and he wanted to know whether they would be making a last mid-course correction before they got there. He keyed his mic. Houston, Apollo 11. Aldrin heard only static. He guessed that one of the tracking stations was about to go out of contact, carried by the Earth's rotation, and that the manned spaceflight network was in the process of switching to another big dish. He lifted the shade from Columbia's right-hand window and looked for Earth, but outside there was only dull, starless black. It would have been a tall order, pretending the mission hadn't started yet, if Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins hadn't flown before. They knew what it was to work in a strange and hostile environment. None of them had any trouble with motion sickness on the way out. On the contrary, Aldrin thought floating inside the command module was even more fun than spacewalking, for it offered all the freedom of movement with none of the limitations of a pressurized spacesuit. With Eagle attached to the command module's nose, Apollo 11 was like a small two-room space station. The two joined craft coasted moonward, rotating slowly in the sun's glare. Aldrin hadn't felt quite on top of things since they left Earth. There was this feeling of being slightly behind the airplane, a feeling that he had had as a squadron pilot whenever he flew a new jet for the first time. Even though everything was going smoothly, even though he was doing things he had done literally hundreds of times in the simulator, it was the reality of it all. Seeing the earth beyond the windows floating free, knowing that the world was listening and watching almost everything they did, that put him just slightly off balance. And there was always another performance ahead, whether it was a mid-course correction burn or a television show. Aldrin keyed his mic again. Houston, Apollo 11. This time there was an answer. 
It was Ron Evans, the Capcom, who was working the night shift. With the three of them asleep, Evans' shift got pretty dull, and he sounded glad to make contact. He told Aldrin the trajectory was so good that there wasn't going to be a mid-course correction, and he could go back to sleep for another couple of hours. So, Aldrin settled in and tried, without success, to sleep again. After a few minutes, he was aware of some activity beneath the couches. Armstrong and Collins were awake. Instead of nine hours sleep, Collins got seven, and fitful ones at that. Armstrong and Collins shed their lightweight sleeping bags, emerged from behind the seats, and the three men began the business of their fourth day in space. Fuel cells needed to be purged, there was breakfast to fix, and there was an unspoken but undeniable tension in Columbia's cabin. Despite their concentrated attempt to conserve their energy on the way to the moon, the pressure was overtaking them. Each of them could feel it. The ruse was getting harder to pull off. They were about to put their lives on the line. Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins had not seen the moon on the way out, but according to the flight plan, they were supposed to take pictures of it a few hours before breaking into lunar orbit. As they finished breakfast, a sudden darkness came around them for the first time in three days. And also for the first time in the flight, the sky was full of stars. Too many to count, each with a steady gem-like brilliance. They had flown into the moon's shadow. Through the windows of the slowly turning spacecraft, they looked at a place where the sun had once been, and there was the moon, a huge, magnificent sphere, bathed in the eerie blue light of earthshine, each crater rendered in ghostly detail, all except for a third of the globe, which was a crescent of blackness. As their eyes adapted to the darkness, they saw that the entire moon was set against a gigantic ellipse of pearly white light. The glowing gases of the sun's outer atmosphere, which stretched beyond the moon into the blackness. The moon was between them and the sun, and created the most splendid lighting conditions imaginable. The sun cast a halo around it, shining on its rear surface, and the sunlight came cascading around its rim to make the moon itself seem mysterious and subtle by comparison, emphasizing the size and texture of its dimly lit and pot-marked surface. The belly of the moon bulged out toward them in such a pronounced fashion that Collins felt like he could reach out and touch it. This cool, magnificent sphere hung there ominously, a formidable presence without sound or motion, issuing them no invitation to invade its domain. Neil summed it up best, quote, It's a view worth the price of the trip, end quote. Yes, can you read Apollo 11? Roger, 11, we're reading you loud and clear now. We were down in the noise uh, as we switched antennas a minute or so ago, over. 
Roger, what uh, sort of settings could you uh, recommend for that uh, solar corona? We've got the uh, sun uh, right behind uh, the edge of the moon now. Roger. Quite an airy sight. Uh, there's a uh, very marked uh, three-dimensional uh, aspect of uh, having the sun's corona coming from behind the moon later. Roger. And it looks as though, uh, I guess what's given it that uh, three-dimensional effect is the uh, earth shine. Uh, I can see Tycho uh, fairly clearly, at least if I'm right side up, I believe that's Tycho, uh, in moon shine. I mean, in earth shine. And, of course, I can see the, uh, the uh, sky is lit all the way around the moon, even on the uh, limb of it, where there's uh, no earth shine or uh, sunshine. Uh, Roger, if you'd like to take some pictures, we recommend using magazine uniform, which is loaded with high-speed black-and-white film. Before they became too engrossed in the mystery of the moon, however... Houston restored some of their perspective with an earful of terrestrial chatter. The crew had to check the flow of fluid through their secondary coolant system by bringing a second radiator into the line. This was a test Collins long opposed. He believed if the primary system was working okay, why bother with testing the secondary? But he was overruled. With the task accomplished, Houston rewarded the crew with the day's news, consisting mostly of baseball and other trivia. Houston did mention that Pravda, the Soviet newspaper, was referring to Neil as the czar of the ship. Collins heartily endorsed this title for the remainder of the flight. Houston was now on to more important things, giving the crew the last-minute information required before they disappeared out of sight around the left-hand side of the moon. The crew needed to know how to get into lunar orbit, and if trouble developed, how to get out of it, all without the help of the ground. Their line-of-sight radio dictated that they could talk only to those people they could see. Behind the moon, they could see no one. For the last 14 hours, They were in the lunar sphere of influence, and their velocity gradually increased from a low of 3,000 feet per second to 7,600 feet per second. To be captured by the moon's gravity, they had to slow down by 2,917 feet per second, to be exact. And they did this by burning their service module engine for 6 minutes and 2 seconds. This was known as LOI-1, or the first lunar orbit insertion burn. This burn would put them in an elliptical orbit around the moon. Apollo 11, this is Houston. All your systems are looking good going around the corner. We'll see you on the other side, over. Everything looks okay up here. And we've had loss of signal as Apollo 11 goes behind the moon. We were showing a distance to the moon of 309 nautical miles at LOS, velocity 7,664 feet per second. Weight uh, was 96,012 pounds. We're seven minutes, 45 seconds away from the LOI 
number one burn, which will take place behind the moon, out of communications. As the crew eased on around the left side of the moon, Collins marveled again at the precision of their path. They had missed hitting the moon by a paltry 300 nautical miles at a distance of nearly a quarter of a million miles from Earth. And don't forget, the moon was a moving target, and they were racing through the sky just ahead of its leading edge. When they launched, the moon was 40 degrees of arc, or nearly 200,000 miles behind where it was now. And yet, those big computers in the basement in Houston didn't even whimper, but belched out super-accurate predictions. As they passed behind the moon, they had just over eight minutes to go before the burn. They were super careful now. They checked and rechecked each step several times. It had to be perfect. Just one digit in the computer out of place could send them into a lunar mountain or turn them and send them into the orbit of the sun. This is Apollo Control. It's 75 hours, 49 minutes. Apollo 11 should have started uh, this long burn. Duration, six minutes, two seconds. Delta V, 2,917 feet per second. Given that burn, we expect uh, an orbit of 61 by 169.2 nautical miles. When the moment finally arrived, the big engine instantly sprung into action and reassuringly plastered them back in their seats. The acceleration was only a fraction of 1G, but it felt good nonetheless. For six minutes and two seconds, they sat and intently peered at their instrument panel, scanning the important dials and gauges, making sure that proper things were being done. Their only worry now was would the rocket burn too long, crashing them into the moon. When the engine did shut down, Collins checked the computer. He read out the results. Minus one, minus one, plus one. This meant that the accuracy of the overall system was phenomenal. Out of a total of nearly 3,000 feet per second, they had velocity errors in their body axis coordinate system of only one-tenth of one foot per second in each of the three directions. That was one accurate burn, and Neil acknowledged the fact as well, saying, That was a beautiful burn. Collins agreed. Buzz queried the computer as to their orbit, and he read out, quote, Look at that, 169.6 by 60.9. And Collins replied, Beautiful, 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 beautiful. End quote. They only missed by a couple tenths of a mile. Collins was elated. And at T plus 75 hours and 55 minutes, Apollo 11 achieved lunar orbit. Obviously, now the astronauts were especially keen to study the landing site, the actual spot just as they had been studying the photos of it for the last few months. Neil summed it up for Houston, quote, It looks very much like the pictures, but like the difference between watching a real football game and watching it on TV. 
There's no substitute for actually being there, end quote. The landing site was an ellipse measuring 11.5 miles by 3 miles, or about as long as Manhattan Island and half again as wide. There were many places that were more exciting, geologically speaking, but they were also more risky or harder to get to. On later landings, there would be time to explore. For now, the geologist would be happy with any place Armstrong and Aldrin managed to visit. And so, Site 2, chosen for its blandness, was a completely unremarkable stretch of mare, close to the lunar equator and thus easiest to reach. Only Stafford and Cernan had seen it close up, but that was from nine miles away. What would it look like from 500 feet? Would it offer a safe place to land a lunar module? Armstrong was cautiously optimistic. Neil and Buzz also called out the familiar features along tomorrow's landing approach path. Mount Marilyn, named after Jim Lovell's wife, Boot Hill, Duke Island, named after Charlie Duke, Diamondback and Sidewinder, and so on, right up to the landing site itself. The sea of tranquility was just past dawn and the sun's rays were intersecting its surface at a mere one degree angle. Under those lighting conditions, craters cast extremely long shadows, and to Collins, the entire region looked distinctly forbidden. But all three of them knew it would look a lot smoother tomorrow as the sun angle would climb toward 10 degrees about the time of landing. On the other hand, the rear side of the moon looked even rougher than the front. It did not have any flat mare or seas as the front does, but it was a continuous region of highlands, an uninterrupted jumble of tortured hills, cratered and recratered by years of meteorite bombardment. There was no atmosphere surrounding the moon to produce clouds or smog or otherwise obscure the surface, so the details were uniformly clear. At T plus 80 hours and 11 minutes, it was time to circularize the orbit to an average of 60 miles altitude above the surface with lunar orbit insertion burn number two. This is Apollo Control Houston at uh, 79 hours, uh, 51 minutes, uh, now under the flight of Apollo 11. We're some uh, 20 minutes away at uh, this time for a time of ignition for lunar orbit insertion uh, burn number two. Uh, this the uh, fine-tuned second burn in the series of two as we uh, in, have inserted into lunar orbit. For uh, LOI-2, uh, the Apollo 11 uh, will be heads down. The burn uh, will be initiated uh, near Paralune uh, as uh, the spacecraft uh, passes uh, over the far side of the moon. Retrograde uh, like LOI-1, but uh, unlike uh, Apollos 8 and 10, the burn will not be targeted to place the spacecraft into a precise circular orbit. Uh, taking uh, what was learned on Apollo 10, uh, this LOI-2 burn is designed uh, to take into account uh, uh, predicted uh, perturbations and gradually circular circularize itself. The uh, 
numbers that we're looking at for LOI 2, that would be time of ignition, uh, 80 hours, 11 minutes, uh, 36 seconds, which uh, should change our orbital parameters, uh, giving us an apolune of 65.7 nautical miles and a paralune of uh, 53.7 nautical miles. The uh, Delta V intended for this burn, uh, 159.2 feet per second. A burn direction, uh, duration uh, anticipated uh, 17 seconds. Uh, it's a burn of short duration, but uh, certainly important in that it establishes uh, the proper uh, orbital parameters for the uh, events that lie ahead. We're go for LOI-2. Uh, during this burn, uh, we'll utilize only the uh, Bank A ball valve. Uh, the bank uh, referred to here, of which there are two are mechanisms that uh, drive the ball valves uh, open and shut, uh, causing uh, fuel and uh, oxidizer to, to mix uh, for ignition. Of course, lunar orbit insertion burn number two was successful. BGY minus point zero. BGZ minus 0.1, Delta VC minus 5.2, QO 362, OX 364, unbalanced plus 50. And our post burn now 94s, 66.1 by 54.4. Go ahead. Uh, you heard that report uh, from Commander Neil Armstrong indicating uh, that uh, LOI 2 was all came off almost precisely as planned. Uh, this is Apollo Control Houston. Uh, we're standing by for uh, Apollo 11 spacecraft to acquire on the high-gain antenna. Meanwhile, uh, onboard readings on orbital parameters were 66.1 nautical miles by 54.4 nautical miles. Very close to, very close to the planned uh, altitudes uh, that were predicted uh, prior to the LOI-2 burn. At 80 hours, uh, 46 minutes. Once Lunar Orbit Insertion 2 was complete, they had a chance to experience circularized lunar orbit. On Earth, pilots describe a perfect day as clear and visibility unlimited. In lunar orbit, the only thing that changed was the lighting, as their spacecraft passed from sunshine into earthshine, that eerie region of reflected sunlight and then into total darkness. The feeling was more like circling in Earth orbit than hanging suspended in cislunar space, but there were marked differences as well. First, they were traveling at only one-fifth as fast as they would in Earth orbit because the Moon has much less mass than the Earth and therefore produces a weaker gravitational pull which in turn meant they required a slower orbital velocity to counterbalance this gravitational force with their own centrifugal force. However, since the moon is smaller, they got around it almost as fast as the Earth, taking two hours for one orbit instead of 90 minutes. Also, they were in a lower orbit. You can't orbit the Earth at 60 miles because of its atmosphere. And finally, they felt a noticeable sensation of speed. One of the mysteries from Apollo 8 and 10 involved the color of the surface of the moon. 
8 had said the moon was simply black, gray, and white, while Apollo 10 had said black, brown, tan, and white. And the Apollo 11 crew were to arbitrate that issue. They discovered a bit of truth on both sides of the argument. It seemed to depend upon the angle of the sun. At dawn and dusk, they voted with the Apollo 8 crew. It was dark gray with some white, but no other colors. A darkened, monochromatic plaster of Paris. On the other hand, near noon, the surface assumed a cheery rose color, darkening toward brown on its way to black night. They voted with Apollo 10 in the late morning and early afternoon. They reported this to the ground. Hello, Apollo 11, Houston. We're wondering if uh, you started into the limb yet, over. Uh, we have the uh, Sam Hatch out, the drogue and probe removed and stowed, and we're just about ready to open the limb hatch now. Roger, thank you much, Neil. We'll be standing by. Late in the day, at T-plus 81 hours and 22 minutes, while Aldrin went in the Lunar Module Eagle, to make systems checks, Armstrong lingered at Columbia's window, hoping to glimpse the landing site itself. Below, a crater called Molke, only a few miles wide, glowed in the light of lunar dawn. Around it, the mare was cut by flat, narrow valleys like desert roads. Just to the north, almost enveloped by night, lay the place where he and Aldrin would try to land. Collins asked, Can you see the landing site? Armstrong peered down among the long shadows. I'm not sure, he said. Suddenly, he and Collins heard Aldrin's voice in their headsets. I can see it, Aldrin said from inside the eagle, contained excitement in his voice. I've got the whole landing site here. After a moment, Armstrong and Collins could see it too, barely emerged from shadows. From this height, landing site 2 was tiny, but it was possible to make out some details. After checking out the lunar module, Aldrin and Armstrong returned to the command module for dinner. During dinner, Collins remarked, quote, Amazing how quickly you adapt. Why, it doesn't seem weird at all to me to look out there and see the moon going by, you know? End quote. But behind his calm words, Collins harbored unspoken concern for his crewmates. He could not tell whether they felt anxiety, for they seemed entirely relaxed. Of the three of them, Collins was least comfortable with the risk they were undertaking. He was most conscious of the fallibility of complex machines. Collins had come to see the flight as a long and fragile daisy chain of events and was only too aware that at any time the chain could break. Now he felt something like an anxious parent with two children about to go on a long trip. He offered to take the watch for the night, encouraging Armstrong and Aldrin to sleep underneath their couches. As his crewmates readied their supplies for the next morning, Collins said flatly, quote, I thought today went pretty well. If tomorrow and the next day are like today, we'll be safe. End quote. This day was about over, 
their fourth day out from the earth, and now they only wanted to rest. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Lannis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 218 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Lunar Orbit. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I surely did, and it was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every single episode of the podcast on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, who honored your pledge in July. Had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to a few of the sources I've used during this series. Mike Collins and his book, Carrying the Fire. Neil Armstrong's A Life of Flight. Andrew Chaikin, A Man on the Moon. Harrison Storm's Angle of Attack. And of course, the Apollo 11 Flight Journal. Well, they've made it to lunar orbit. That was a bit of a nerve-wracking burn. And, of course, it had to be accomplished on the far side of the moon out of contact with mission control. The service module burn came right on time with nearly perfect results. That put Apollo 11 in an elliptical orbit. And the second burn, which was not nearly as nail-biting, put them in a circularized orbit, just where they wanted to be. I guess they kind of settled the old argument between Apollo 8 and Apollo 10 as to the color of the moon. It turns out both Apollo 8 and Apollo 10 were right. It just depends upon the lighting, the angle of the sun, which of course makes a lot of sense. The low sun angle also made the landing site appear pretty treacherous as well. Well, we are finally there. We're on the brink of the moon landing. Obviously, the astronauts are feeling the pressure. They're about to attempt something that no one has done before, with the whole world watching. Can you imagine that? They're about to embark on the most dangerous part of the mission, the landing. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Alexander G. from Germany donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Pierluigi from Italy donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Anthony P. donated at the Vostok level. Robert E. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Tim T. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. So, that brings our total Patreons to 128, and that is just 22 short of the goal of reaching 150 Patreons by the end of the year. 
and our overall donors have reached 219 with a goal of reaching 300. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time donation of $10 or more, or you can sign up at Patreon for a monthly donation, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have some of these Orion desk model kits to give out. The model is of an Orion spacecraft, service module, and solar arrays. It's made out of cardstock, so to assemble it, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select the winner, I gave every donor a number from 1 to 219. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 172. Donor number 172 is Andy Cox. Andy, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I still have a few more of these, maybe three or so, and we'll have another drawing next week from the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank AJEWI, Captain Keyboard, and Soaring Dusty for taking the time and effort to write a very nice review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters, we will read out the July list of retweeters next week. This is the end of content for this episode, and you are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue. Actually, we will start Apollo 11's landing, and uh, I'm really excited to do that one. I don't know if I can do it all in one episode. We'll see. In podcast news, July had the third highest download so far. In July, the podcast was downloaded in 98 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most downloads in July. U.S., number 1, number 2, the U.K., number 3, Australia, number 4, Germany, number 5, Japan, number 6, Canada, number 7, France moves up to the 7th place, Netherlands moves down one spot to 8th place. New Zealand moves up to 9th place. And Sweden moves up to 10th place. Thanks to all those listening in the top 10 countries. In personal news, I wanted to let everyone know that Mrs. SRH came through her wrist surgery fine. She has a plate and two screws installed in her left arm. So she may be setting off the metal detectors now. <laughs> Because I usually do before, but this is the first medal that she's had. (laughs) I guess you can tell we're getting a little old or something. She will be back with the retweets next week, and she did want to thank all of you who sent emails wishing her well. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 219 up by next Thursday.
So long for now.